Hi, I'm Dr. Neil Barnard. Welcome to the exam room. Hey, what time is it? Well, are you looking at the clock? Or how about your body clock? Did you know that they can be out of sync? And it's not just a question of what you eat. It's a question of when you eat. You're going to learn in today's show all about the body clock and how nutrition can get it off or on. And Dr. Hannah Kaliova, the Physicians Committee's Director of Clinical Research, is going to be here. She's going to talk with weight loss champion Chuck Carroll all about how often you should eat, what you should eat, and when, and how you can use foods to keep your body clock running on the right time. And if you're off, she's going to help you to reset it. Here's Chuck. Rolling along here on the Exam Room Podcast, brought to you by the Physicians Committee, the weight loss champion Chuck Carroll, guiding you all through the body clock. An interesting topic that we have not yet discussed on the show. I was talking to a colleague. She says, hey, Chuck, why don't we talk about the body clock? And I said, you know what, Dr. Hana Kaliova, this is a brilliant idea why don't you come on down to the studio and we'll talk about it. So with that, we welcome the Director of Clinical Research here at the Physicians Committee, Dr. Hanna Kaliova. Welcome. Good morning. Thank you for having me. I think it is fitting that we are taping this in the morning if we are talking about the body clock. Like, when you came to me about this, you had a great deal of enthusiasm. And I'm not even joking. You caught me in the stairwell. I don't know if you remember this conversation. Um, and I was like, all right, the body clock. Let's do it. So... <laughs> Let's kind of walk people through it, what it is, why it's important. Um, so what is the body clock? Right. That's an excellent question. Uh, in fact, it's a tricky question because we don't, e we don't only have one body clock. We have more. Mm. Uh, we have one master clock that's in our brain. That's the central master clock. And it's entrained by the light and darkness cycle. So, you know, our circadian rhythms are about 24 hours long, mm -hmm. and this is ensured by our master clock in the brain. However, we also have peripheral clocks in all our organs. All the cells of our body have a peripheral body clock, which is uh, composed of the so-called clock genes, which are in expressed and the, they are synchronized with the master clock in the brain. And the way how they are synchronized with the master clock is through nutritional cues, through cycling of fasting and eating, and also through the composition of our meals. So it's crucial not only what we eat, but also when we eat and how many meals a day we're eating. So if, if our circadian rhythms are roughly 24 hours, right. makes sense, 24 hours in a day, what happens to a person then if they work overnight? Say you know, they don't work the 9 to 5, maybe they work midnight till 8 o'clock in the morning. Does that throw everything out of whack? Or if they stay on that schedule, does everything just kind of fall into place naturally? Yeah, for example, shift workers um, are at a lot higher risk of uh, obesity and diabetes compared to general population. And one of the explanation is that their peripheral and central uh, clock uh, get disrupted and disynchronized. Um, in fact, it's so powerful that uh, researchers uh, took healthy volunteers and compared their um, circadian rhythm and their expression of their clock genes, that's the peripheral body clock, and mm -hmm. their ability to synchronize with the master clock. And they looked at this ability uh, after, uh, th after three days of a day shift, and then uh, they did the same with three days of a night shift. And they had to quit the experiment because all the healthy volunteers were becoming pre-diabetic after three days of night shifts. Wow. Yeah. And so, only three days. Right. It's very powerful. I mean, how you treat your body is very, very powerful in affecting your metabolism. And the reason is that it affects the complete center of metabolism, the, the body clock that's in every cell in your body. That's interesting. So no wonder I did that 
um, for a little while. You call it shift work. When I was still working traditional radio, um, I, I worked. I was producing a love song show. So mm-hmm. obviously that was at night, and yeah, I wouldn't leave the office until two o'clock in the morning, and then. You, you go home and you can't fall right, right asleep. So right. a lot of nights I was falling asleep as the sun was coming up. I was still overweight at the time, but even then I felt like something was just off. Forget the fact that I wasn't eating well. Right. Like my entire body just didn't feel good because I was going to bed as the sun was coming up. There's just something unnatural about that. Exactly. You disrupt your melatonin secretion. Uh, naturally, uh, melatonin secretion increases as darkness approaches. So if you go to bed early, you get a nice increase in your melatonin secretion. And, uh, you know, the melatonin secretion is up until the sun rises again. Mm-hmm. However, if you go to bed at, you know, let's say at 2 or 3 a.m., you get only, let's say, one quarter of the melatonin secretion compared with when you go to bed early. And melatonin is a potent immunostimulator. It has anti-aging properties. It has uh, positive effects on our cardiovascular system. It protects us against cancer. Uh, You want your melatonin secretion to be really high each night. So you want to go to bed early. Another factor that uh, affects melatonin secretion and our body clock is the blue light from our screens, from our computers, from our uh, smartphones and tablets. So uh, a good idea is to just read a book before you go to bed and shut off all the appliances and all the computers and all the screens. Right. That, that's a book, not a Kindle. All right. Let's right. let's make very clear. This is an actual paper, paper book. book. Yeah. Yes. What a concept. Do they still exist? <laughs> um I've heard that about that. I also know that on some of the newer mobile phones and and I would assume tablets, um, they have what they call a nighttime function. And I assume Mm -hmm. that that takes away some of the blue light. Are are you aware of that? And is that beneficial? Yeah, it's it's definitely a good idea when you're using your devices uh, in the evening. Uh, however, if you can avoid it and go just go for a walk and mm-hmm. or read a book, that's mm-hmm. even better. So, what time would you recommend putting down the device, like for the for the day? What time does it go in the charger, not to be seen again until morning? Uh, let's say nine p.m. would oh. be a reasonable time. Okay. And what about bedtime? Lights out. What's what's the ideal bedtime here? Uh, 10 o'clock would be would be a reasonable bedtime uh, that allows you several hours before midnight uh, that just boost the melatonin secretion. You cannot uh, make up for the, the hours uh, slept before midnight by more hours uh, after midnight. So gotcha. it's definitely better I've to go earlier to bed than, rather than later. I've heard that you can never make up sleep. And so like <laughs> you're, you're basically confirming that that's right. true, right? Right. That's that's funny. So uh, ten o'clock is is ideal. Get up at what I'm assuming eight hours. So six six a.m. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Okay. Um, let's talk a little bit about nutrition here because right. I know that that also plays a critical role in this. So how do the two tie together? Uh, so nutrition is crucial in synchronizing our body clocks, the peripheral to the central one. Uh, so we when we wake up in the morning. Uh, It's very important to eat breakfast because breakfast uh, is the first meal of the day. It starts and it boosts your metabolism. Uh, People uh, who regularly eat breakfast are uh, usually leaner than those who skip breakfast. And also, uh, when you eat the same meal uh, in the morning or at lunch or in the evening, uh, the same meal doesn't have the same metabolic effects. Mm. The same meal eaten in the evening hours results in the most uh, fat deposition after, you know, when you eat it in the evening compared with breakfast or lunch. So it's uh, it's a good idea to have uh, breakfast as your largest meal of the day because all your metabolism is boosted up and your insulin secretion is the most efficient in the morning. Wow. So you want to start with a good breakfast, uh, then have a reasonable lunch and very light dinner. 
if you skip dinner completely, that's fine too. It, it will just, you know, make you more hungry in the morning. Right. And, uh, that will reinforce uh, the big breakfast in the morning. Uh, but it's really important to start with your day with a big breakfast. I think that's something that a lot of us struggle with because right. we wake up and then it's a hurry. You know, if you have right. kids, it's get them out the door to school, maybe make them lunch. And then you have to rush to go out to work. And lo and behold, you haven't even eaten breakfast right. at all. So if a person skips breakfast, how bad off are they in terms of what it is that we're talking about here? Right. Uh, so skipping breakfasts uh, increases your metabolic inflexibility, which is a bad thing. Uh, to be metabolically flexible means that you are able to switch um, the main uh, substrates of as a fuel. So if you're fasting, if you're not eating, uh, fat is the main fuel for mm -hmm. your body. However, after you eat a meal, you want to switch to carbohydrates right. as the main fuel. Right. And uh, if you are skipping breakfast regularly, this decreases this ability to be flexible. And uh, so let's say you eat breakfast or you eat lunch later in the day and uh, you are not able to switch between the fuels as flexibly as you, you're supposed to. Mm -hmm. So uh, skipping breakfast uh, is not not beneficial for your metabolism. And also, surprisingly, uh, for example, for people with type 2 diabetes, skipping breakfast uh, increases your blood sugar for the whole day, which wow. is like contraintuitive. You, you know, you would expect when you're skipping breakfast, your blood sugar will be lower. However, uh, your blood sugar will sharply rise after your lunch and you will not be able to bring it down again to the same levels as when, when you're eating breakfast. That's fascinating. But let, let's, it increases let, the blood sugar in patients with diabetes by about 20%. Wow. Yeah. That is significant. 20, wow. That is really significant. Um, but let's not confuse skipping breakfast right. with fasting because right. it, it sounds like kind of what you're talking about. Fasting can be healthy if right. done properly. Exactly. Exactly. If you want to fast, then uh, don't skip breakfast, uh, but skip dinner. Mm. Uh, that will allow your body to fast for about 18 hours or so. Mm -hmm. uh, and that's very beneficial for body weight and for your metabolism. In fact, intermittent fasting, uh, which means, you know, uh, just bouts of fasting, not fasting all the time, uh, but let's say skipping dinner, for example, every day, that would be an example of intermittent fasting or um, fasting for one day a week mm -hmm. or a few days a month, or there are many ways how to do intermittent fasting, but these intermittent fasting regimens result in uh, better glycemic control and better um, weight management uh, in people who struggle with body weight and with diabetes. Uh, the, con compared with just continual energy restriction diets. So you recommend when fasting, you eat at least once per day, not going on these things like a water diet where all you drink is water for maybe three days or something uh, like that. You know, it's an option too. Uh, but I'm just introducing the thought of fasting every day. Uh, and just skipping your dinner. That, gotcha. that might be a good start. Gotcha. You know, you don't need to do like extreme fasts. You don't need to start right away with three days of water fasting only. You know, maybe for the beginning, just skip your dinner. Right. That will that will be some fasting too, and you will get metabolic benefits on an everyday basis. So if you're skipping dinner, then is it important that between breakfast and lunch and then maybe some snacks that you still get to that 2,000 calorie mark to make sure that you're getting all of the vitamins, the nutrients that you need? You don't need to worry about the calories so much. Uh, you will discover when you skip dinner, you will be really hungry in the morning. So that will automatically lead to a large breakfast, which is a good thing. Okay. And then the lunch will be probably moderate. You will not be terribly uh, hungry for, for the lunch. So we've talked about when you should go to bed, when you should get up, but what about when should we eat? What, are, what right. is the ideal time for breakfast? What is the ideal time for lunch and dinner? Uh, yeah, one research study um, that aimed at weight loss um, 
in um, people who are overweight, uh, compared the timing of the meals. And uh, they were looking at early eaters who, you know, started eating their meals early in the morning and also finished their meals earlier in the day compared with late eaters. Mm -hmm. Uh, And uh, early eaters were losing more weight than the late eaters, Uh, although the composition of the diet was the same. The caloric intake and the macronutrient intake was the same between the groups. So this just uh, underlies the importance of um, starting your meals earlier and also finishing your meals earlier. I've heard some people say that you should eat within a half an hour or an hour of waking up. Does that really matter as far as like from the time that you wake up until you take that first bite? We don't have enough data to say, you know, exactly, um, but there's probably like a time frame. Uh, We did a research study in patients with diabetes and our time frame for breakfast was between 6 and 9 a.m. That seems like a reasonable time frame that's also flexible and allows, you know, more options. Some people prefer, for example, exercising in the morning. Mm -hmm. Um, So in this case, you won't be able to get your breakfast within 30 minutes of waking up. But at the same time, you will get even more metabolic benefits when you exercise in the morning and then have your breakfast afterwards. So what about how many times a day we should be eating? That's another big question. Right, exactly. Many people think uh, snacking is a good strategy for weight maintenance. However, large perspective studies show that people eating more than three meals per day who are snacking are at higher risk of getting obese and getting type 2 diabetes compared with people who eat only three meals per day. So snacking is not a good strategy how to maintain your body weight. Uh, In fact, the more meals per day you eat, uh, the more hungry you feel during the day, Hmm. which sounds, uh, you know, contraintuitive again. However, uh, you stimulate uh, your desire to eat and your hunger each time you eat. So less eating occasions per day are better than more. So for most people, three meals per day will work out just fine, breakfast, lunch, and dinner. And But just keep in mind, breakfast should be the largest meal of the day and dinner should be the lightest. And if you want to get extra benefits, you just skip dinner uh, to get some uh, intermittent fasting. I think that the last question that I have for you then is, what should we be eating? That right. seems like that's as important as timing. Exactly. Uh, different foods uh, have different, uh, a different effect on our clock genes. Uh, and plant foods tend to uh, synchronize the peripheral and the central clock. Uh, some plant foods are even more efficient than others. Mm-hmm. Uh, for example, the amino acid L-arginine uh, that's in all nuts and seeds and legumes uh, is very efficient in boosting our metabolism and in activating our brown fat. While white fat only stores energy, brown fat is able to uh, release some of the energy in the form of heat which is great for weight maintenance, right? When you want to lose weight, you want to activate your brown fat. Mm. So in this case, you eat a lot of legumes to get there. And L-arginine not only activates your brown fat, it has also other positive effects. Uh, For example, uh, it's it's a donor of nitric oxide, which um, leads to better endothelial function. The inner lining of your arteries work better uh, with L-arginine as well. So eat a lot of beans. Eat the beans. Exactly. For the heart. Uh, You know what I like about you is that you answer questions as I'm thinking them. So you were just talking about brown fat and white fat. I'm like, I'm going to ask her what each one of those are. And as I'm thinking that, I'm not kidding you, you answer Mm -hmm. that very question. You're on point, and I think that the listeners will appreciate that. Dr. Hanna Kaliova, Director of Clinical Research here at the Physicians Committee, a wealth of information on the body clock. Thank you so much. Thank you, Chuck.
continuing here on the exam room podcast by the physicians committee i am the weight loss champion chuck carroll on twitter at chuck carroll wlc good for instagram as well the wlc weight loss champion an amazing incredible success story this is the thing you've heard me say this in the past the thing that i love most about doing this show is getting the opportunity to speak with people who have not only changed their health but changed their lives and nobody exemplifies that more than my next guest and with that we welcome to the show adam sud adam thank you so much for joining us today thank you so much that's a that's a very kind welcome i appreciate it Uh, and man i appreciate your story when you reached out to me on instagram i immediately shared your message with my wife and i just i could not be more humbled both by your story and your compliments the fact that you said that um i was able to help you just even the smallest amount during your recovery which we're going to get into in a second but right off the top i just wanted to let you know that i am a huge fan of yours oh thank you so much man that that, that means that means so much to me i really appreciate it and you know the uh, pcrm and dr neil barnard and everything that you guys do you know, if PCRM didn't exist, I don't, you know, places like this, institutions like PCRM save people's lives on a daily basis. So. I mean, that's the that's the biggest compliment that um, that I think that we could be paid. But let's talk. Let's talk about your story here, Adam, because we've spoken on this show with people who have improved their health, improved their cholesterol, um, reversed their diabetes and heart yeah. disease. But I don't think that we've ever had anybody quite like you on the show you like me were formerly severely overweight i think that you maxed out at, at what uh somewhere between 320 and 350 um you know through a life lifetime of a lot of self-shame self-hatred and self-abuse by the time i saw 320 on the scale i was never going to step on the scale again right so while i continued to live the lifestyle and, and assume i got bigger i never got back on the scale well let's talk about that lifestyle and the self-abuse what are you referring to there so starting at a pretty young age i I became a closet eater like around age 12 um through a lot of missed messages from my parents who only had just the most incredible uh, intentions for me um i believe that me wanting to eat foods that were you know junk food um and my parents not wanting me in, and uh, to do that, and making comments, you know, things like, you know, moment on the lips, stuff like that. And, and you know, you don't want to, you know, if you eat that, you'll be fat and you don't want to be fat telling me what I do want to be. I felt like if I was that, then I was broken and that there was something wrong with me. So I would. And it was interesting because those foods existed in our house. And um, and when you're that age and somebody is talking to you about behavior, but they're not explaining, hey, listen, there's nothing wrong with you. We love who you are as a person. We are interested in your health and some of the behavior that can lead to you getting sick. We don't want that happening. I miscommunicate. I, I misunderstood that what they were talking about was who I was as a person. So I felt like there was something broken with me. Am I bad for wanting to eat bad food? And I would hide in my room in the dark, sit in the corner, eat cinnamon rolls. And I would do this because I was ashamed that if I was seen, then they would see something wrong with me, not my behavior. And at about the same time, I was diagnosed with ADHD and I was put on a met on Ritalin at the time. So I had a doctor, you know, a white coat who was telling me at a very impressionable age, there's something wrong with you. There's something that doesn't work properly that the rest of the world doesn't agree with. But if you take this pill, you will be fixed. And I believe that from that point on, when I saw something about me that others didn't like or that others didn't agree with, I felt like I was broken and I needed to find something to fix it. And uh, in high school, uh, Ritalin became Adderall. And... I was a little bit overweight in high school, but not not really. Um, and I just moved to Austin. I didn't really have a lot of friends. And I remember I was at a party, and one of the one of the few friends that I had said, "Hey, you know, don't you take Adderall?" I said, "Yeah." He goes, "Did you do you have any with you?" I said, "Yeah, I got some with you." He goes, "You know, if you take more of it, you can stay up like all night, and it's really fun." And 
I can tell you the first time I, I took Adderall as a recreational drug, I was hooked. Because for me, it fixed, and I say that in, with, I'm using air quotes, it fixed everything that I thought was broken in me. Um, my relationship with my dad was struggling at that point. Um, he's very type A, I'm not. And speed, which is what Adderall is, makes you have type A type personalities. And it also made me the life of the party. Everything, everything was instantly fun. It curbed my appetite because it's an amphetamine. So I didn't want to eat. And this allowed me to lose the weight that I thought was another thing that was wrong with me. I was overweight and I don't know why. I must be broken. Well, here, this medicine is going to fix it. It solved everything that I thought was wrong with me. And I would not let that stuff go. That made that that was magic in my hands. And I was going to do anything and everything I needed to do to make sure that I always had enough at all times. It became the most important thing in my life overnight. And I was hoarding the medication from my from the medicine cabinet in our house. Um, but it really it worked for me in high school. It did. You know, I mean, I lost the weight. I was you know, I got a scholarship to the school that I wanted to go to. I had loads of friends. I mean, this was doing it for me. This was doing exactly what I was hoping it would do, was making my life better. So I thought. And in college, things started to turn, you know. Um, you use a substance to an excessive amount, and over the course of time, you're going to build up a tolerance. Right. And that absolutely happened for me. I needed more and more and more, and needing more of it became the most important thing to me. Uh, I had. Yeah. Let me just stop and, and ask you a question there. At any point, as you started to use this more and more, yeah. and your tolerance was building up, did you have any idea that you were developing a problem or had a problem at that point? So it's. You know, it's interesting because, yeah, I recognized that there was a relationship with this drug that was happening, that I was developing a need for it. But at the same time, like it, it's really it's an interesting slippery slope that you get on because you don't realize how fast you're sliding. Mm -hmm. And I always assumed that because it was working for me, I could stop whenever I wanted, you know. Yeah. Um, why would I stop doing something that was making everything work for me? And so fine, I need a little bit more. Okay, I'll just get more. And, but that need for more became the most important thing. It, was, it wasn't my friends. It wasn't my, my passions in school. It wasn't my family. It was everything that was real in my life was secondary to this need for more. And what I needed more of was Adderall. Right. And I needed it now. I needed, at all times, these were the most important thoughts in my, in my, my head. How much do I have? How long will it last me? When I run out, where will I get more? How much is it going to cost? Where am I going to get the money? That was it. That was at all times. And then when I had an abundance, it was carefree, whatever, you know. But, and... You know, I was about a sophomore in, in college, and look, I went to college really with an intention of discovering who I was as an individual. I'm an identical twin, um, so and we grew up very close. We did both go to the same school in college, and we lived together, but, you know, in college, you're, it's about finding out who you are as an individual, and, but, you know, I dropped out of college as a sophomore because uh, I told my parents I was coming back to Austin for a job, and I did have a job. But the real reason was it was easier for me to get more Adderall in Austin because I knew the friends that had it that would sell me some. I knew dealers. I knew doctors that I could scam. So I dropped out of school, really, to become a criminal drug addict. Man, and you that's, had a whole system. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I wasn't messing around with this stuff. This was, this was everything to me. Yeah. Because what it is, what it was for me was I needed it so that I did not experience reality. Because reality was too difficult for me to deal with. Um, I was doctor shopping where I had multiple doctors prescribing me the same medication without them knowing about each other, which is a felony. I was forging and altering prescriptions. I was dealing and stealing drugs. Uh, I started to live like a hoarder. Um, and I became so depressed that I developed an addiction to fast food. And like I'm going to tell you, this was my day. This would be my day. I would get up in the morning. 
uh, and go to a breakfast taco place and get four to five potato, egg, and cheese breakfast tacos. I would then go to Whataburger, which is a fast food restaurant chain here in, in, in the south, and I would get the extra large honey barbecue chicken strip sandwich meal with the fries and the soda. I would then go to McDonald's and get two double quarter pounder meals. For dinner, I would get an extra large pizza with, from Papa John's with beef and the chicken strips on the side with the honey mustard dipping sauce. Then at about three in the morning, I would go back to Whataburger for four, three or four of their breakfast on a bun sandwiches with sausage. During the course of that day, I would drink about 15 sodas. And those were during the, the periods when I didn't have Adderall because when I had Adderall, the average prescription is about 20 to 30 milligrams a day. Mm. I was doing 450 milligrams in a 24-hour period. Wow. I would do that for about five to six days straight, no sleeping, no eating for six days. I would start to go into the throes of a chemically induced psychosis by day four and a half, day five. And in order for me to be able to come out of it and go to sleep and, and like sort of cut myself off, I would pop painkillers in order to get out of that, you know, state. And mm -hmm. because by then you're not getting high anymore. You're just sort of getting back to subnormal and everything is a hallucination and nothing is real anymore. I don't know if I'm dreaming or I don't know if, I, if it really happened. And by when, when I was in that state, it was. It's very hard to, uh, to explain the way it feels when you're so detached from reality that you don't know what's really happening. And uh, I was, you know, approaching 350 pounds at the time, and I would have to shop at a place called Casual Mail XL because I know it well. You know, I had a 50-inch waist. I didn't, I couldn't fit in any clothes that came from any normal mm -hmm. store. Um, and you know, I hated myself. And I hated myself because I viewed myself as my physical self, right? If I didn't love my physical self, then I didn't love who I was. And who I was was a miserable college dropout drug addict who treated everybody so poorly. I mean, the way that I would talk to my parents, the things I would say to them, I will never repeat. And I can only imagine when it was the worst of times for me it would be, you know, 10 o'clock at night and I'd be at my parents' house just trying to scam them out of money, you know, mm. like, oh, I need it for this or, oh, I need it for that. Some, you know, BS excuse to get money just for drugs because that's all they were to me was an ATM for drug money. And the things that I would say and I would leave and I can only imagine them staying up the entire night asking themselves, are those horrible things our son just said to us the last things we're ever going to hear him say? And I came home one night and I used to ritualistically beat myself in the mirror. I'd stand in the mirror without my shirt on and I'd look at these stretch marks and the, the, the bed sores and the, the rashes because I wasn't bathing. I wouldn't shower for months at a time. And, and you know, it was about this time that my dad, who has been involved with Whole Foods Markets since the beginning, came to me and he said, look, Whole Foods Markets just partnered with Rip Esselstyn and Engine 2. They're offering a seven-day immersion where you can learn how to adopt a plant-based diet and you can feel better. I really want you to go. Will you go? I said yes, not because I had any intention of ever listening to anything that, that they had to say. I said yes because I believe that if my dad thought I was taking him seriously, I could ask him for money. So I went to the immersion. I was a drug addict there. I brought drugs and I used drugs at the immersion. I was a mess. I was t so diaphoretic and toxic that I smelled so bad that they actually had meetings during the immersion. And I didn't find this out until years later because there were so many complaints about my presence that they thought they were going to have to remove me from the, from the program. Mm -hmm. But I went to every single lecture and I listened to everything that was being said and all of it made sense to me on some kind of, you know, personal uh, level. I, you know, I grew up an animal lover who ate meat, of course. You know, I, you know, I grew up in Texas. I ate the diet of my culture. Sure. You know, I, I, and I'm, I, I'm Jewish. So I ate the diet of that culture, which is also meat and dairy based. And, but I grew up an animal lover. And here they were saying that I could not only be healthy, but I could also not cause any unnecessary harm to other living animals that mattered so much to me. And you know, there was a speaker the last night named Dick Beardsley, and he talked about 
he was a, a Hall of Fame marathoner, ran one of the greatest races of all time against Alberto Salazar. And he talks about how after his career as a marathoner that he, um, he suffered a series of accidents on his farm where he got caught in machinery and he nearly died and he got addicted to painkillers. And he describes himself as an addict and he talked about the doctor shopping and the stealing and the lying and, and all that. And I'm sitting there just for the first time hearing somebody else describe me in, in every way as a, as a person, these were my behaviors. That's, he could have been talking about me, would have been the same story. Mm-hmm. And I thought, if there's anybody that I know that I can go up to and say, I'm an addict and I'm really in trouble and I really need help and know that they won't judge me for it, it's this guy. Let this be the first time that I ever out loud admit that I'm an addict and finally ask for help. And I can remember standing next to his table after his speech where he was signing his books and my feet were frozen. They could not come off the ground. And I thought, all right, just say hello. Maybe if I just start a conversation, then the words will come out. And I was so afraid that I couldn't speak. And, you know, fear won that night. I had an opportunity to fundamentally changed the course of my life. But I chose a path of fear because I just wasn't desperate enough. The, the drugs were still so necessary for me. I hadn't reached that rock bottom yet. But unfortunately, about a year later, I would experience my rock bottom when I attempted suicide by overdose. Um, I was in my apartment. Um, I was looking at my life two weeks down the line. I'm, I'm out of money. I'm out of my apartment. I'm homeless. That's my future. My parents had cut me off. Um, my sister wasn't talking to me. My twin brother, who I've always been incredibly close with, and you know, he and I have shared a history of depression together. And I can remember in college, me going up to him when, when the drug addiction really started to get bad. And I said, you know, Bobby, I love you more than anybody on the planet. And I'm going to make a promise to you if I never commit suicide, will you promise to never do the same no matter how bad things get because I could not live without you. And we sort of made this promise to each other. But that night, you know, I broke that promise to him. And I saw a bunch of pills on my table and I just took them, grabbed them, swallowed them, and immediately began to panic. I tried to stand up and I threw up on the floor and passed out. So there I was. I'm 30 years old. I'd been struggling with suicidal thoughts for the past six months. I had already had erectile dysfunction. I was almost 350 pounds. I'm lying in a puddle of my own vomit, surrounded by empty fast food garbage and empty pill bottles. And all of it was a result of self-hatred, self-abuse, and just no self-worth. Mm. And luckily, I regained consciousness and had this very surreal experience where I I saw what what my life was going to look like. I had two options. I could die, which means continue doing the drugs because that's what would happen. And what that would mean was my brother, my little sister, and my parents spending every day of the rest of their lives asking themselves, why did I need, need to eat and drug myself to death? Or I could simply pick up the phone and say, I need help. I know my life can be better, and I'm willing to do whatever it takes to find that out. And I picked up the phone, and I called my dad, who I'm telling you, there's nobody I've shown more hatred towards for no reason whatsoever than my dad. He has taken more abuse from me than anybody I've ever shown like verbal abuse to, and without judgment and without question, he simply said, Adam, just come home and let your mother and I help. And I, you know, I didn't have any clean clothes or anything like that. So I just went over to their place. And two weeks later, later, my dad and my mom walked me into rehab in Arizona. And within the first 48 hours of rehab, they do all these tests on you, you know, biometric screenings and psychological testings, and they strip search you and they search your bags and it's a very humiliating experience. Yeah, I had to stand naked in front of doctors and nurses while they examined my body. I had all these cuts and wounds on my legs that weren't healing for reasons I didn't know at the time. 
Um, and I was sort of lying my way through this whole thing. Oh, well, that's because of this. It's not that big a deal or, you know, whatever. Um, within 48 hours, I come to find out that I'm type 2 diabetic. I have high blood pressure, high cholesterol, erectile dysfunction. I'm diagnosed with bipolar disorder, suicidal depression, anxiety disorder, sleep disorder, and attention deficit disorder. I was put on a cabinet of medication my blood glucose, when I checked in, the, my fasting blood glucose day one was like 390. And my blood pressure was so high that I had to have it monitored every single morning that I was in rehab because the doctor was saying, Adam, we are so worried that you're going to have a heart attack. My resting heart rate in the morning was above 120. Mm. So I had never been more humiliated with myself when I got all these diagnoses from this doctor. Because of the engine to immersion, I knew that all of this was a result of my actions. This wasn't genetic. There's no genetic reason why. I mean, sure, you can say that genetic predisposition played a role in it, but it was my lifestyle choices that determined the fact that I had diabetes and high blood pressure and high cholesterol and that I was 320 plus pounds. And I immediately walked to my dorm room I picked up the phone and I called my dad again and I said, I want to come home, you know, and he said, what are you talking about? Well, they're telling me that I have diabetes and heart disease and, you know, I have bipolar disorder and all this other stuff. And I just wanted, I was just trying to get sober. I can't deal with this. Of course, I'm uncomfortable. So I want to quit. You know, I'm, I can't do this. And he says, well, look, Adam, let's just say for the sake of argument, Let's just say that you have diabetes or heart disease. Um, and I'm not saying that you do, but let's just say for the sake of our argument that you do. You learned at the engine to immersion that this is all reversible, that none of this is permanent if you don't want it to be. You also learned what to do to reverse it. So if there is something about your life that you don't like and you can do something about it, then it's not really a problem. And he helped me understand in that moment that since I was the cause of all of this, I am also the solution. And in that moment, my dad stopped being my adversary and really became my ally along this whole journey. And so that's what I decided I was going to do. And in rehab, you don't really have a lot of control over what you eat. Um, I did the best that I could. And remember, like the only grains I had eaten at the time were like the occasional piece of iceberg lettuce. They forgot to take off my burger at McDonald's <laughs> or something. Yeah, man. <laughs> um, so when I, when I left rehab, I checked into sober living. I spent time in sober living. And, and during that time, I transitioned uh, to a plant-based diet for the purposes of reversing these diseases. And uh, within six months, my diabetes and, and uh high blood pressure and high cholesterol were completely gone, um, along with the erectile dysfunction. Within uh, 10 months, I had lost over 100 pounds. And within a year, I was off of all my psych meds I was put on in rehab, the, the mood stabilizers, the sleeping medications, the anxiety medications, and the ADHD medications. Right. And um, it's interesting because when I was there, you know, I was surrounded by a bunch of like 20-something-year-old guys eating whatever they wanted, whenever they wanted, and I, was, I would get up every single day and I would cry my way through a meal. And I, I was faced with that dilemma of if I know what to do to be happy and healthy, why is it so difficult to do that? Why so do I? It's such a hard question that, that we ask ourselves. Like it, right? it, it sounds like the easiest thing in the world. Of course right. you want to be healthy. Yeah. But it's never that simple, man. It's just not. And I, I'm struggling. Like, if this were simply a matter of intellect and will, then I wouldn't be in this situation. There's got to be something else going on. And I don't. I, I wish I could remember who it was that recommended that I watch the Pleasure Trap by Doug Lyle on on YouTube, the TED Talk. And I did that. And the minute I finished watching that TED Talk, my my recovery completely changed. My understanding of my situation completely changed because I understood finally that the reason why I felt so compelled to continue eating the burgers and the pizza and all that stuff was not because there was anything wrong with me, is there was a biological problem that was existing where I had created a dependency on a dopamine response that was so, high, so outside the bounds of normal human experience 
that my body was compelling me to continue doing it because it believed it was biologically beneficial for me to do so. And that all I had to do was spend a certain period of time removed from those foods and eating the plant-based diet and eventually it wouldn't be a chore and eventually I would actually look forward to it. And I just had to be comfortable being uncomfortable until that day came. Let me uh, let me ask you this. Um, I, I remember those nights, and I know that you've listened to the podcast, so I'll just gloss over this. I remember the nights that I was detoxing off of Taco Bell. That was my vice. And um, yeah. I just – I got angry, man. Like it was a full-blown oh. detox. The cold yeah. sweats, I – you know – famously put my fist through the wall through the door it was not the easiest thing in the world and you have this drug component on top of that and i'm wondering here which was the harder habit to kick was it the food or was it It, the drugs honestly it was the food yeah you know it really was i was in sober living there was no way i was going to use drugs right i mean like i got caught trying to now to be honest i got caught trying to steal drugs out of the medicine cabinet the first few weeks in sober living mm-hmm. but you know when it came to food it was the sober living everything that was killing me was readily available there yeah you know the sodas and the ego waffles and the hot pockets and the microwavable pizzas it was all there did they encourage and, cigarette smoking as well they didn't encourage it in the house, but of course, you know, vaping was a big deal and right. um, it was not frowned upon. You know, right. they'd be happy if you quit. But, I, you know, I had really great support when I was in sober living. The manager and the assistant manager really allowed me. They said, Adam, what do you need to be successful? And we'll supply you with that. You know, we can't change the way this entire house is fed, but you tell us what you need. And we'll help you be successful. And I'm telling you, that if they hadn't have been willing to do that, I would not be where I am today. I was really fortunate. And um, it helped me to understand, you know, that if I could get up every single day and just be comfortable with being uncomfortable, because in those moments of discomfort, that's when you're changing yourself. Yeah. And it helped me to learn that when I get up every single day and I prepare a meal on a plate that is about health and wellness – that is about me becoming a healthier person today than the person I was the day before, that that is an act of self-care and that's an act of self-love. And that's me saying to myself that today I choose to recover. So that for me was my, my daily affirmation of sobriety. And it really, it, it, it laid this foundation to where I realized that I had created this environment for positive change, where regardless of my emotional or psychological issues that I was dealing with, at the end of the day, because I was transitioning to this lifestyle, I was going to be healthier than the person I was the day before. And that was really pivotal for me. I needed that. And the the day that I walked out of the doctor's office six months into my recovery, when he said, your blood glucose is 80 and I had already stopped taking the medications because my blood glucose level was dropping into the you know, high 60s, which does not feel good. I was taking 2,000 milligrams of metformin while eating this way of eating, and my blood glucose was going too low. Yeah. So I stopped taking it at like month three. And he said, well, I guess you don't need medication anymore. I guess we're done. And I said, you know what? Thank you so much for your services, but I'm so glad I no longer need them. And I walked out of the office, and I felt – something that I had not felt in a long time, which was self-worth. There you go. And that self-worth made me feel like I was worth saving. Like I was worthy of all of what will, what, what will come next. No matter how tough it is, no matter how hard it is, I am worth going through it because there's something of value, intrinsically valuable in me that I've just discovered for the first time in a long time. And, you know, my emotional recovery was struggling. I was doing IOP, which is intensive outpatient therapy. Mm -hmm. I was doing four or five hours of therapy a day, five days a week. And they were trying to get me to accept that I'm this angry, entitled, arrogant, spoiled drug addict. And in typical angry, entitled, arrogant, spoiled fashion, I would usually throw up a finger at the therapist and start walking down Santa Monica Boulevard. Right. And I had a conversation with my house manager. And I said, you know, I don't understand what's going on. And, you know, I don't know why I'm making such great progress and such positive change with my physical health, but I can't make a dent in my emotional recovery. And I don't know what's going on. And 
I was talking with him and he helped me understand that the reason why I was able to make this change with my physical health was because I simply accepted that the way I was living was killing me and I didn't know any other way to do it. And I listened to somebody else, Rip Esselstyn and the Engine 2 team said, try this. We're confident it will work. Try it. I did it. I accepted. I don't know how to live as a physical person. The only way I know how to do it is killing me. I'm going to do what they say. We'll see what happens. And my life got better. What if I approach my emotional recovery in the same way? What if I go into therapy and say, I don't know how to live as a healthy, emotional person. I also don't know any other way to do it. Tell me what you recommend I should try. I'll try it and we'll see what happens. And from that day forward, my emotional recovery completely changed. And I came to the realization that I've only had two problems in my life. My two problems are that I didn't know how to live as an emotional or physical person and everything else was a result of those two things. And once I accepted those two things, my life got better. And, you know, as of today, I've lost about 170 pounds. Um, I'm the happiest and healthiest that I've ever been. And there's a great quote that says, we are what we repeatedly do. Excellence, therefore, is not an act but a habit. So if I get up every single day and I prepare a plant-based meal on a plate that's about health and wellness, and if I get up every single day and I'm committed to my recovery and moving forward with my life, and if I get up every single day and I can be of service to one person, then at the end of that day, I am a happy, healthy, sober person who's of service to other people. And that's exactly the type of person that I want to be. And that's not something that I, I, I achieve uh, once. If I do it once and I am that, that's something that I have to do on a daily basis in order to continue to be that person. And I have the opportunity of being that person, not just on my own you know, uh, efforts, but because there are several people who were very, very influential in my recovery. Of course, you know, Rip Esselstyn is now a mentor of mine. He's a very close friend, but the tools that I learned from engine two helped me to, you know, I was in survival mode, right? You know, everything I did was to put a toxic substance into my body to remove me from life and just survive the day. And survival mode is exhausting. It's exhausting emotionally, spiritually, and physically. But the, the lifestyle that engine two and rip Esselstyn taught me along with the amazing recovery that my parents, my mom and my dad gifted me, I've been able to stop surviving every day and start living every single day. And when you live your day, life is a beautiful thing. And, you know, my mom and dad, I have a photo in my bedroom, two photos. One is a photo of my dad and my mom walking me into rehab. And then the, the other photo is a photo taken by my mom as she watched my dad and I run the race in Austin three years later because they literally walked the entire journey with me. And it's just, I, you know, I get up every single day at 4.30 a.m. because I can't wait any longer for my oatmeal. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> it's, uh, it's, you know, it's an incredible thing. Uh, I'm going to be six years sober in September. Congratulations. And, um, you know, I have, like I've mentioned before, my twin brother, and he was type 2 diabetic and 280 pounds in January of 2016, he moved in with me in Santa Monica. I was still living in LA at the time because I asked him to move in with me and just live my lifestyle for six months. Let's just see what happens. He's a brilliant filmmaker. He's actually working with Sean Munson, uh, the, the, the guy who directed Earthlings. Nice. Uh, on his next projects, they're, they're Bobby's the camera guy filming all the stuff. Um, and, uh, he moved in and we met with Dr. Matt Letterman from Forks Over Knives on January 4th and uh, did all the biometrics and everything. And within six weeks, his blood glucose was normal. He's lost 90 pounds. So he's under 200 pounds for the first time in like 10 years. And he has really become this amazing advocate for animal rights. He's at the, the slaughterhouse vigils every week. He's an amazing photographer and filmmaker, so he's actually going to be presenting uh, at this conference, this animal rights conference. He's going to be talking about uh, animal rights photography and, and vigils. And, you know, 
he came to me in one day and he said, because he, he loves reading philosophy and poetry. In fact, every morning he reads a Walt Whitman poem. Um, he came to me and said, there's a quote by Joseph Campbell that says, um, I'm probably going to cry when I say this. Um, people are not so much looking for the meaning of life as much as they are the experience of being alive. And I didn't understand that until you helped me take back my life. Wow. And I'm telling you, no matter what I do in my life, nothing will be better than that. Seeing my brother, the light come back in his life and find his passion, doesn't matter what else happens in my life, nothing will top that. I will never be prouder of anything else. And um, it's mm. incredible. That is, man, that's a heck of a story. Is that what kind of encouraged you or, or gave you the thought then to start working with other people? Because that's the direction that you yeah. went in. Now you're all yeah. in in this and you're helping people who had similar struggles to yourself achieve what they, I'm sure, feel is an impossible goal. But yeah. you're now helping them get there. So about a year after I got sober... Uh, I was, you know, I used, I went to college for film and I, I was a camera guy and, and I tried to get back into it, but I just felt uncomfortable. I, I realized that a lot of my passion for filmmaking was driven by drugs. Right. Um, and it just wasn't, I wasn't the same person anymore. And I didn't know what I wanted to do with my life. And I had a conversation with my dad and, and my mom and they said, well, don't wait for something to happen. Go make something happen. Go do something. And I thought, well, what if I do something selfless so that I can discover something about myself? So I asked my brother to come with me. We, we went and we lived in an orphanage in Nepal and we worked with orphans. And it was there that I realized that what occupied my mind 90% of the time was how what I choose to put into my body fundamentally changed and impacted my recovery and has made more of a more of a profound impact on my life than anything else. And how can I use my experience in drug addiction recovery to bring the message of a plant-based diet to help others? And I immediately came home. I went back to school. I got certified as a health coach. And, uh, and I developed a program, and I pitched it to an IOP in Sober Livings. And I started working as a, in addiction recovery for two years um, where I taught – people how using a plant-based diet can create an environment for positive change where every single day you can get up and know that if you eat this way, you will be healthier than the person you were the day before and how regardless of your emotional and psychological issues, you can create a foundation for daily positive change and that can support you through some really tough times because you know, recovery doesn't happen six months from now. It's like people like to talk about how many years they have sober, and it's great, and, and we should because it encourages those who are day four right. to know that it's possible. But recovery isn't about getting six years. Recovery is about getting up today and doing what you need to do today and being committed to daily positive change. And, um, and then I got an offer to come and work uh, at Whole Foods Market in Austin at the global headquarters um, on both their total health immersions team and at the, the medical and wellness center as a health coach. And I did that for a year. And Cyrus, Dr. Cyrus Kambada, who's one of the co-founders of Mastering Diabetes, which is an organization that helps people reverse insulin resistance through the use of low-fat, whole-food, plant-based nutrition. And uh, he came in and gave a presentation, and he, he stayed with me when he was in town, and we just hit it off. And... Uh, he said, hey, man, you know, if ever you have an interest in working for Mastering Diabetes, let me know. And the opportunity came up, and I took it. And so now for the last six months, I've been a, uh, a diabetes coach with Mastering Diabetes, and it's just been the most incredible journey. Um, I've been speaking for the last four years part of Engine 2, uh, but to see people, especially the type 1 diabetics, because um, we also work with type 1 diabetics and help them understand that insulin resistance is the metabolic dysfunction that that uh, affects anybody who's living with insulin resistance is affected. We're affecting the entire gamut of diabetes, type 1, uh, type 2, type 1.5, prediabetes, PCOS, gestational. 
It's also a driving force behind cardiovascular disease, dementia, Alzheimer's, liver failure. All these things are, are sort of driven by insulin resistance. And to watch somebody who, you know, believes that they have been, you know, uh, dealt a bad hand by life, um, realize that by making a simple change on their fork, they can make a profound change in their life. Is just the most incredible gift I've ever received in my life. To be able to give that to somebody for to me is a gift, and uh, it's been wonderful. The power of food, it honestly, Adam, it never ceases to amaze me. To go from something that was such an unhealthy addiction and such a bad habit to now being something that fuels goodness yeah. and health and positivity, and it's literally changing lives. It is uncanny. It's amazing. I and want. I, I want to end with this question because we, yeah. we are. I, I could talk to you for days. Like, <laughs> you're just. You're such an engaging guy. Um, you talked about when you were struggling with addiction, mm. using that uh, drugs to kind of mask your personality and mask the pain. How yeah. is it for you now that you are unmasked? How freeing is it? to live the life that you were truly meant to lead? You know, it's, you can't put it in words. Um, I, uh, it, so there's, there's something to be said about getting up every single day and being your authentic self. And I think that that's what the purpose of addiction recovery is. It's the daily search for the authentic self. And I believe that I have been able to get as close as I've ever been to discovering my authentic self through a lot of the work that I've done, both with you know therapy, with nutrition, uh, with running and meditation. But it's something that is, is reevaluated on a daily basis. And I have just the most incredible amount of gratitude for everything that I've gone through, for the forever being obese, forever being a drug addict, forever having diabetes and heart disease and all those other things, and forever even attempting suicide. I'm so grateful for all of those things because they have been able to allow me to see what really matters to me in life. And I had to get to that point in order to see it. Not everybody has to. It was necessary for me. But gratitude is... I think that gratitude is, is for me the most important thing in my life. If I can get up every single day and all of my actions are driven by gratitude, that I've been given a second chance at life and be grateful for the opportunity to do the smallest of things for somebody allows me to see who I truly am. And it, 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 it's unreal. It's unreal to get up every single day and know that I am honestly trying to be myself, like, as you say, unmasked. And I'm not afraid of it. And I welcome my flaws and I show them. I am not afraid to talk about the horrible things that I've done in my past, the, the dealing and the stealing and the scamming and, you know, all of that stuff, because it's all necessary for, it was all necessary for me to discover what truly matters to me in life. And I will you know, it, it's, it's like they say that over your life, you can break closed enough times until you finally break open. And for me, it took a lot, but I'm so, so grateful to be able to show up authentically every single day. And I'm so grateful that you were able to uh, come on here unmasked, be your authentic self, share your Thank story. You. And no doubt it's going to inspire literally everyone that listens to this. This is just an incredible story, and I'm so very proud of you for the oh, way thank that you, you, so much. you've been able to turn everything around and conquered a number of demons and discover yourself and help your brother along the way and help other people along the way. And frankly, Adam, the world needs more people like you. And uh, I'm, I oh, mean that from the so bottom much. of my heart. So That means a lot. So uh, people can check you out on Instagram at Plant Based Addict. Um, where else can can they reach you right now? So you know I'm I'm on Facebook. I have a, a page called Plant Based Addict. So it's it's Plant Hyphen Based Addict. 
and then on Instagram at plantbasedaddicts, all one word, no hyphen. All right. Adam Sud, thank you so very much for joining us, man. Best of luck to you in the future, and keep changing lives. Thank you, Chuck. You know, it's true. Sleep plays such a huge role in overall health, and I think we just learned how to get our body clock back into adjustment. And is this not true? If your clock is off and if your sleep is wrong, it becomes a vicious cycle. You're not sleeping well. You feel rotten the next day. So you'll eat anything just to get through the day, 16 cups of coffee, whatever it is, and then you don't sleep well at night. And it's just this cycle that repeats and repeats and repeats. And for many people, they just never feel really well. Well, I think we just heard how to get back on track. So thank you for listening. Please remember to subscribe on iTunes. Please give the show a five-star rating. I'm Dr. Neil Barnard. Thanks for listening.